All right, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him, that would be Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus knows the time has come. It's time for him to go to Jerusalem. It's time for him to die on the cross. It's time for him to rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and offer salvation, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, to all who would believe and all who would trust in him that he gave his life on the cross for us in our place for our sins. And therefore, the title of our message tonight is Jesus, the Generous King. Jesus, the Generous King. Well, if you were with us last Sunday or watched us, uh, we looked at what is often called the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday when Jesus, the humble king, rides in to Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. Uh, traditionally, most people consider the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday to be on Sunday. And that begins a series of events which we often call Holy Week or Passion Week. Now, during this week, it has some of the most popular events in the life of Jesus, including the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, uh, the crucifixion, that's on Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross, and of course, Easter Sunday, when Jesus rises from the dead. And so tonight, I want to give us an, an estimated timeline of the week uh, each event is significant. We don't have time to do much of an explanation of the events because we'll be here all night if we do that. And I say estimated timeline, and the reason if you're new to the Bible, we're glad that you're with us, uh, but if you're new to the Bible, the ancients were not as concerned as day, with days and times as we are. Uh, I know people use their phone now uh, for... Uh, checking what time it is. I'm still old-fashioned. I still practice wrist worship, and I, I'm constantly looking at my watch. They were not so concerned with such, such things. Uh, tonight, uh, for the timeline, I'm going to rely very heavily on the work of Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor and Alexander Stewart. Do not stress over trying to write it down. If you want um, a copy of their work, uh, just email the church and we'll give you, it's a four-page outline and they give you scripture references and stuff like that. Just email the church and we'll send it right over uh, to you. So let's go day by day. On Sunday, uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. It's kind of what begins everything. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead and there's great excitement in the air that Jesus might be the Messiah. After that, Jesus once again predicts his death. And then Jesus goes and he visits the temple. But the temple is not really so much a house of worship anymore as the religious leader mafia, if you will, has turned it into a money-making, money-laundering, big-money place for themselves. That's Sunday. Now we go to Monday. Uh, Jesus is coming back towards Jerusalem. He's staying out of town, and he curses a fig tree. And why would he curse a fig tree? It symbolizes the fruitless and faithfulness, uh, faithlessness of Israel. Then he goes into the temple, and he meant that famous story, he overturns the table. He's kicking out the, the people that are making money. Uh, he's challenging the powerful religious leader. One scholar puts it this way. Jesus goes into the temple and he hits the beehive. That's a great way of putting it. That's what he does. And it is a hot, hot scene. And that's it for Monday. Then we come to Tuesday. And on his way back into the city, Jesus teaches his followers the lesson about the fig tree because now it's barren. And he says, it's just like Israel. It once was fruitful, and then now this tree has no fruit on it, so now it is completely barren. Then Jesus teaches and engages in what is one of my more favorite parts of this week is the controversies in the temple. 
Jesus. We studied these in Matthew's gospel where they are extensively written about. He verbally battles with the religious leaders. They are so frustrated with him. Here you have the top intellects of the mind of Israel uh, speaking with who they consider to be an uneducated carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth was the wrong side of the tracks. It was where the uneducated people came from. And they're trying to uh, trick Jesus with their questions. And Jesus is just demolishing them. He is absolutely demolishing them. He's teaching parables. He's, He's saying woes about them. He's just going at them right in front of all the people in the temple. And the religious leaders feel their power slipping away. After that, Jesus predicts the future in a dialogue with the apostles. That's Tuesday. Now we come to Wednesday. Wednesday's probably the toughest day to figure out. Some think that Jesus is resting at the home of Simon the leper and Mary of Bethany anoints him with oil there. Others think that Jesus continues his daily teaching in the temple complex. It's quite possible both are true. Luke, uh, in chapter 21, verse 37 and 38, tells us something about this week. It says, and in the daytime, some versions say every day, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him uh, in the temple to hear him. Uh, Then also a lot of scholars think that on Wednesday, the plot against Jesus to kill him really begins to get serious. The religious leaders have been plotting Jesus' death for a while. This could be Tuesday when more of this happened. We don't know. But we do know one thing. We do know that they state that they want to avoid this week. Because it's Passover week, the streets are packed, the people are there, and Jesus is big news. He's very, very popular. And there's a lot of Galileans where he is from. They're in the city too. And so the religious leaders think, you know, we want to do this some other time because this could really blow up in our face if we do it uh, then. Now we come to Thursday. Thursday's a very busy day. Uh, They are preparing for the Passover. Jesus tells the apostles to go get things ready for the Passover and all that kind of preparations. That takes most of the day. Uh, It gets a little bit later in the day and the final Passover meal with the disciples Jesus eats. And so, and there he institutes the Lord's Supper, what we know as communion. Now, Uh, Passover was, they celebrated the deliverance of Egypt, God's people from Egypt, where they were slaves. Egypt, a type of sin in the Bible. The Lord's table or communion or the Lord's supper is somewhat different as it symbolizes Jesus delivering us from our sins and our guilt against God. After that, uh, they have the Last Supper and, and the cleansing of uh, the, well, during that time, that the final Passover is what happened, but the Last Supper and Jesus' cleansing of his community. At that, at, before they really sit down to do everything, Jesus washes their feet. And he says to them, and, and just imagine that later on, like, God washed my feet. Oh, my goodness. And, and, but, but it symbolized to them a very well-known thing that, that he says, this is an example for you. This is what you are to do for one another. You are to wash one another's feet, not necessarily literally, but you are to serve one another. Another thing that I think it does is I think there's some other symbolism there in the fact that it talks about in the Bible, your walk is the way you live. And when we walk and when we live, we what? We commit sin. And Jesus is washing their feet symbolically as he is showing them that he also washes away uh, their sins of their, of their daily walk, of, of their daily lives. Next, what begins is what's called the farewell discourse. 
Jesus' great teaching on such things as I go to prepare a place for you and what it means to abide in him. We talked about that last summer. And then uh, the farewell discourse continues. Jesus begins, particularly you see this stuff in the Gospel of John. Jesus teaches on the coming of the Holy Spirit, his prayer for the apostles, and his prayer for us, his prayer for those who would believe the message of the apostles. Then next, Jesus predicts Peter's denials. Guess what happens? Peter denies that he will deny Jesus. He says, that's never going to happen. Uh, then Jesus issues some final practical comments and, and, and some commands, sorry, and then some notes for the future, just kind of tell them some things. And then they get up and they leave and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, now it's getting very late on Thursday night, Jesus prays, he sweats drops of blood from the pressure that is upon him. He prays to his father and says, Father, if there's any other way for the sins of mankind to be forgiven, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath, which would be poured out upon Jesus on the cross, if there's any other way for this to happen, he says, you know, let it happen. His father is silent. Heaven is completely silent. And uh, he's going back and forth between praying and the apostles. And the apostles, Jesus' right-hand men, the guys who are going to change the world, do you know what happened to them? They fell asleep. <laughs> they, they couldn't stay awake. So now we come to Friday, often called Good Friday. And Good Friday probably starts a little bit after midnight. So it's going to be a long, long night for Jesus. He's never going to get to bed. And, and so we have the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. And so the Judas, the betrayer, and the guards uh, come to arrest Jesus. And that slimeball Judas does it with a kiss. He says, the one I kiss is the one that you want to arrest. And, and then, so he does it. We're told in another gospel that then Peter cuts off one of the guards' ears. Not a great thing. Jesus puts the guy's ear back on. I always say, what is it, like Mr. Potato Head or something like that? It's kind of a strange scene. But then they take Jesus to what's called uh, the Jewish trial of Jesus phase one, the first trial. And it's an informal one. Uh, it's at the house of Annas. Can everybody at home go, Ugh. Annas, Ugh. hate that guy. Oh, do not like that guy. It's at Annas. Now, Annas is who? He's the former high priest. Now, why is he the former high priest? Because he was so bad, the Romans fired him. They terminated him. They, they just couldn't stand him. And so then after that, they moved to phase two of the trial of Jesus, a more formal Jewish trial before Caiaphas, who is the high priest, and he's Annas's son-in-law. So he's probably basically doing what Annas uh, told him to do. And so, and part of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jewish leaders, now, they're supposed to wait until daybreak, until they make a verdict. So while they're waiting for the official verdict, they've already made one. They put a beating on Jesus. Uh, then Peter denies Jesus while the trials are going on, just like Jesus said he would, and Peter said he wouldn't. And then we come to the third trial or the third phase of the Jewish trial of Jesus, the final verdict. The sun comes up. They vote Jesus should die for blasphemy, himself making himself out to be God, and they vote yes. After that, Judas hangs himself. He realizes what he has done is wrong. He returns to the religious leaders and says, what I did was wrong. Here's the money. Don't go through what you're doing. They want nothing to do with him. They don't want, they want anything to do with him. So then we move into... 
the Roman trial of Jesus. There's basically three phases of that. Uh, only the Romans can do the death penalty. They, they, they took that away from the Jews and when they conquered uh, Israel. So he goes to see uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor, and, and the religious leaders say um, he claims to be a king. He claims to be a king. There's a few other things that they say. We'll look at that in our study on Friday night. Uh, but the ironic thing is, this is what strikes me, the hypocrisy is just beyond belief, is that the religious leaders will not enter Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor's house, because that will make them unclean for the Passover. I mean, really? You're going to falsely accuse a perfect guy, Jesus, and you're going to kill him. You're going to ask the Romans to kill him, but you don't want to be unclean for the Passover. Okay, that's all I have to say with that. Next, we move to the Roman trial of Jesus, phase two, which he, he goes in front of uh, another real slime ball by the name of Herod Antipas, King Herod Antipas. So Pilate finds nothing wrong with Jesus, and he tries to pass the buck, and he says, well, maybe this should be Herod's case because he's from Galilee. He happens to be in town. Jesus is in town from Galilee. Herod's in town from Galilee. And the disgusting slob only wants to see a miracle from Jesus. So finally he's like, well, pff, I don't know nothing, man. Send this guy back to Pilate. So then we come to phase three. Phase one, he's in front of Pilate. Phase two, he's in front of Herod Antipas. Phase three, he's back with uh, another Roman trial of Jesus, the final verdict. Herod sends him back to Pontius Pilate. He says he's not guilty. Pilate says he's not guilty. He offers one free prisoner to the people, Pontius Pilate. This is a tradition they had. And the crowds want this murderer by the name of Barabbas. And they're yelling out, crucify him. And Jesus is condemned to death. Next, Jesus has the cross. They they, the Roman soldiers beat him, and he's taking the road to Golgotha. And um, interesting, in the beatings, people often died just there in the beatings that they'd given him. And he'd already been beaten by the, by the religious leaders, and they marched Jesus up to the cross. Next comes the crucifixion. The Romans are professional executioners. Nobody escapes. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. One will come to put his trust in Jesus. The other will continue to mock Jesus. And the scene around the cross is you have these professional executioners. They're doing their job. It's another day at the office. The Romans would crucify people publicly because they would, you know, wanted you to see what happened if you, you know, went up against Caesar. You had other people that were walking around that were just walking up, wagging their heads and their fingers and mocking out Jesus, while others are mourning because Jesus is being crucified. Next, we have the death of Jesus from noon to 3 p.m. It's completely dark over the land. Then Jesus dies. Then we have the burial of Jesus in the, uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich religious leader who had become a follower of Jesus and no doubt was one of the dissenters in the Sanhedrin of the vote, or maybe they made it so he was not around. So Saturday is a quiet day. The Jewish leaders, uh, they go to Pontius Pilate and they go, listen, we need to post guards at the tomb because we're afraid that the apostles uh, are going to steal the body because they said that Jesus, that, you know, fake, he said that he was going to rise from the dead. Then we come to Easter Sunday. So Easter Sunday, some women get up early and they're going to go anoint Jesus's dead body. They know there's a rock in front of the tomb. They're really not so sure how that they're going to deal with that. But they go and then they get there. They discover an empty tomb and the angels tell them what to do. The angels tell them, go, say, go tell the disciples and Peter. Don't let, Make sure you tell Peter because the Lord forgives him for denying him. It's okay. And, and that Jesus has risen from the dead. So 
the women tell the disciples. They go off to tell the disciples. Matthew says, interesting thing, Matthew says, as they go, they're running and they are fearful and joyful. They're both. They're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead. Like, this is great, this is great. Luke tells us the disciples didn't believe them. They, they, They didn't believe them. Then Peter and John, they rush to the tomb, but they find it empty. And then Mary returns to the tomb. That's Mary Magdalene, and she encounters Jesus. Then uh, two disciples are walking. Cleopas and another disciple are walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. Cleopas is not one of the 12, but only later do they realize it. After that, after Jesus leaves those guys, he appears to the 10 without Thomas. You say, but there's supposed to be 12 disciples. Well, there's 12 minus Judas. That leaves us with 11. Thomas is not there. That leaves us with 10. After that, there's later appearances of Jesus and the ascension. He appears to the 11, including Thomas again. He appears to other people at the, at the Sea of Galilee and various other appearances. And then he issues the Great Commission. Matthew's account is the most popular. But since we're spending this week with Dr. Luke, Luke, the writer of the gospel, was a doctor, we are going to read his Great Commission. Luke 24, 46 through 49. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ or Messiah uh, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that, now this is very interesting. This is the mission of the church. And that successful Christian living should be preached? No. Four steps to being happy? No. 18 ways to be a good dad? Nothing wrong with that. That's not the core message of what Jesus wanted preached. He said, and that repentance and remission of sins or the taking away of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses, he says to the apostles, and you are witnesses of these things, that's followers of Jesus now. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high until I send the Holy Spirit, wait for him in Jerusalem to come to you. He will give you the power you need to preach the gospel and do the ministry that I have for you. Then various appearances all over the, over the course of that time um, between the, the uh, when Jesus appeared to them And then finally, he rises up and and he gives this great commission. And right after that, we have the ascension. Approximately 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. And the Savior King um, of these events will someday return as judge in what we call the second coming. Luke 24, 50 through 53 tells us after he's given them their commission, what he says, how the ascension goes down. He says, and he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass when he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So it, it is a physical, Jesus was raised in a physical body and his physical body is raised up to heaven And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. So they went to the temple. We might say they went to church. So does the fact that you know these things and you go to church mean that you're okay with God? Maybe, maybe not. See, what I've given to you is the highlight of the events of the Passion Week, but it certainly seems, we mentioned this Sunday, that as you go through the different events, you might 
find that more is communicated through the reactions of the people to Jesus than some of the events themselves. I mean, it's not just what they say, it's how, again, they react to Jesus and how their actions tell us where they stand with Jesus, whether they go to temple or not, whether they go to church or not. Doesn't, not everybody in, in the building is, is in the same place with God. So a lot of the actions of the people will tell us, are they really with God or are they really against God? The reactions are many. There are many. And I just want to look at a few. And when you look at them, you know, some are easy to tell, some are not to tell if you're new to the Bible. We've said this before that sometimes the fact that the religious leaders hate Jesus and the apostles is so very confusing. The fact that so many religious people don't like Jesus, even though they go to church, is very, very confusing. So the first group I want us to look at is religious phonies. Religious phonies. Sadly, you find them in church. I wish it wasn't true, but you do. One of the good things about the way we do church is when you teach verse by verse, it tends to weed them out. It tends to, teaching verse by verse tends to attract um, let's just put three different crowds. It attracts two of the three crowds. You have um, the people who really want to follow hard after God. They love verse-by-verse -verse teaching because they love that it's challenging. Even though it's brought to their attention their sinfulness, they see that as that's God's invitation to intimacy to me, that he wants to make me more like Christ, that I know he's at work, and that's why I'm really willing to listen to the gracious words of Jesus, even if he's telling me I'm a sinner. So the people who really want to follow hard after Jesus tend to like verse-by-verse -verse teaching. Surprisingly enough, people who don't know Jesus like verse-by-verse -verse teaching. Many people come to our church, and if it's you watching or you come here, you want to come Sunday, Many people come who are not followers of Jesus. They want to hear, they grew up, some of them grew up hearing the Bible readings, or they want to hear the Bible read, and they want someone to explain it to them without a flowery presentation. They want it straight up. Just tell me what it says. Let me go home and think about it. I don't want to be entertained. I don't, want, I don't want any kind of fancy talk. I want it to be clear. I want it to be simple. I don't want it to be boring, but I want it to be right on point with what God says so I can make up my mind concerning these things. So very little difficult feedback. You know, and I talk to people after service, and they say, they'll walk up to me and they'll say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I invite people to tell me they're not followers of Jesus during the service. I'm not a follower of Jesus. And this is the one thing I say to them. Was I clear? I don't ask them if they like it. I don't ask them what they thought about it. Was I clear? And was I simple? Did you understand it? Because, friends, I just want to leave the work in the hands of God and to let them and God have it out, if you will. I, I, don't, want to, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be the middleman. Now, who's the third people that don't like verse-by-verse -verse teaching? Well, they're the people in, be in between the people who really want to follow Jesus and the people who don't believe in Jesus, sometimes referred to as the mushy middle, but it's a lot of people. It's the people who are like, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I, wa I don't want to be told I'm a sinner. Well, it's by being told that you're a sinner and seeing that Jesus died for you that your affections grow tremendously for Jesus. That's how you love him more when you realize what he has done for you. That's how he changes you. But if you don't want to be told that stuff, well, you're probably not experiencing a lot of change other than maybe where you spend Sunday morning and how you spend some of your money. And so those kinds of people don't really 
don't really like that. So sadly, there's a lot of religious phonies in the church. Luke chapter 20, verse 45 through 47. Then in the hearing of all the people, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, beware the scribes. Who are the scribes? They're the teachers of the Bible. They're the Bible scholars. Beware the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They want to look religious. They want to look so very religious. They love greetings in the marketplace. What is it? They love to be seen. Oh, hello. How are you? Oh, how are you? Oh, they, loved, they love to be seen. They love to be fussed over. They love the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts. What are they? They love to be honored. They love to be honored. Who devour, well, look what they do, who devour widows' houses, they take advantage of widows. And for a pretense or for a show, make long prayers. Oh, dear God. Or they just, just they drone on and on and on. And Jesus says, these will receive greater condemnation. They think they are the ultimate insiders when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. They essentially mean the same thing. They think they're the ultimate insiders, but they're going to find out that they, they are the ultimate outsiders, that, that they, have, they are outside of the grace of God. Let's call these guys the ego-driven religious leaders. And notice an interesting thing. Jesus doesn't comment on their teaching. He comments on their behavior and their desire to be seen as spiritual. Now, I think we can assume Jesus goes beyond being on our guard for them to making sure we don't try to become like them. Jesus' warning is clear whether you're a leader in the church or not, don't live your life to be seen by people. Lead your life to be seen by God. And don't pray long, empty, droning on and on, boring prayers just to try and look spiritual. Now, those types of people, it's amazing. They often take advantage of people. They take advantage here. We see it in the, in, the, in the text. They like the best seats at feasts. They take advantage of people's hospitality. And they even take money from widows. And Jesus considers that to be a very, very serious thing. Interesting, and again, I'm just reading a little bit into this. Jesus not only warns us about them, but for our sakes in a church with one another, I think he's warning us not to create them with our praise. I mean, don't make a big fuss over them. I mean, you know, sometimes people um, will meet me after a service, and I know they mean well, but, but they'll say to me, I agree with everything you said. And then I'll just smile and I'll go, you know, we both could be wrong. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't shower people. If, if somebody does something in and that blesses you, just say, you know, thank you, that was really a blessing. And that's fine. And if they're humble, they'll say, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you were... I'm glad that you were blessed. But if you create them by constantly praising people, it, it actually creates an invitation or environment for them to, to take advantage of people. And if you puff their heads up enough in their pride, they will be unable to take constructive criticism of any kind. You see, when it comes to people that are using their gifts for the kingdom of God, at best, they're, they're just 
using the gifts that God has given them. So there's nothing really special about it. And, and, and they don't deserve the best seats. I mean, look at Jesus, the ultimate servant leader. What does he do at the Passover feast with his disciples? He washes their feet. And then ultimately, where's his seat? His seat's on the cross. He doesn't look for the best seat in the synagogue. Now, when we come to chapter 21, we roll right into, and this is probably Tuesday, a complete contrast. It says, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury or into these big offering boxes they had around. And they were made of metal and people would come up with these big coins and they'd throw them in. And a lot of times, probably to be seen. And then it says in verse 2, And he saw also a certain poor widow. Another version says he saw a very needy widow putting in two mites. Another version says two small copper coins. Another version says two cents. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all of these put in out of their abundance, and that's okay. Have put in offerings for God. They put in out of their abundance, they've put in offerings for God. But she, he says, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. In other words, she put in all she had to live on. So from the hypocrisy of those who want to be seen in the church we move to sincerity. From phony religion, we move to true devotion. From the showy rich, we move to this poor widow. I really love the way the account is in Mark's gospel. And I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this in kind of the way it, it seems to me. It's like Jesus grabs the apostles. He grabs them and he's like, did you see that? Did you see that? You know, Jesus is not easily impressed. Have you noticed that in reading the Bible? He's impressed when the centurion says, I'm like you. I'm a man of authority under authority. Jesus goes, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. You get it. I have authority over sickness, over demons, over everything because I'm under the authority of my Father. And in the same way, Jesus grabs the disciples and goes, did you see what she just did? Did you see that? You can picture all the angels in heaven going, wow. She put in everything that she had. You see, everybody saw her throw in two pennies. Jesus threw, saw her throw in two giant diamonds. How different her response is to God from most people. Even the apostles can't say they have that level of complete trust. She's not looking for any kind of recognition. Rather, she is looking for how she can humbly serve the Lord. What is she doing? Basically, she's giving her life to the Lord. That's what she's doing. Not, she's not just going to do what's best for her. That's what most people do. What most people do is they, they choose. They go, well, I feel God is leading me to do this. How often it corresponds to what you want to do yourself. And they take Jesus along for the ride. So much for, you know, denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Jesus. Most people just do what they want. But not here at all. Jesus praises her faith and her trust. That she has her priorities. Her heart is set on God. 
And she is a woman of true faith. She's a true insider. This is what a true insider looks like. She demonstrates a very, very important concept for all of us. Just like Jesus does. That no one is too poor to give of their time, talents, and treasures to the Lord. No one's too poor for that. Now, let's get practical. Don't be afraid. He's like, oh, no, he wants all our money. You cannot give all your money to God. I mean, if you give all, you come in Sunday maybe and you give all your money to God and you give it all, you know, Monday morning I get a call from the police. Hey, there's loads of people sleeping outside your front door because they say they have nowhere to live anymore because they gave all their money to the church. Well, that's not going to work, is it? And that's not the point of what Jesus is trying to make here. What's the point? Trusting participation. Trusting participation as an evidence, motivated by the grace of God, as an evidence that grace has come to you. Participation in the work of the gospel in the church and in the world. More than anything we see, Jesus sees the heart behind what we do for him. And it shows how much we love him. And we see it in Jesus' love for us. What she demonstrates really is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for the Apostle Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, think heaven, he came from heaven, yet for your sakes, for my sakes, but since I'm looking at you, it's for your sake, yet for your sake he became poor. So he was in heaven he came down the stairway to earth. God became a man. He was raised in a poor town by a poor carpenter and his lovely wife. And then he dies a sinner's death on the cross, although he is innocent. So though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, that me, that you, through his poverty, through all he did, his life, his incarnation, his becoming a man, his life, death, resurrection, that you could become rich. What does that mean? So you could go to heaven. In other words, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus' poverty is only because God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and then, as this woman did, giving your life to Jesus, just as King Jesus generously gave his life to you. Now, friends, I know this. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you're having trouble giving it all, you hear stuff like, oh, I, I want to participate, I need to give a little bit of money, or, or I really should get involved in volunteering, or, I, or God would, I think God wants me to do this, or I should do, you know, be involved in something. It's easy to hold back. It's easier to hold back. It's harder to take that next step and trust in Jesus but it's only harder to take the step. Once you take the step, you will be, you will find it to be the most rewarding thing you've ever done in your life. I speak from experience. I had a, I had a kick in business. That's the best way to put it. <laughs> and I knew that God had a call on my life to do what I do now. And that was a hard step to take. It was easier to rationalize the reasons why I shouldn't take it. It was hard to take it. But when I took it, you know what I've been saying all the time? What took me so long? 
So one more passage. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of the unleavened bread uh, drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes, we'll call them the religious leaders, sought how they might kill him. So <laughs> happy Passover. Let's kill Jesus. They want to get rid of him. For they feared the people. So they want to get rid of Jesus. They want to kill him. But they're again, they're afraid of the crowds. Let's call these people the haters. Yet, there's two divisions of haters. One is the people who just hate everything Jesus, everything religious, everything church, everything blah. But these are people who say, oh, I believe in God. I, I go to church. I, I go to temple. I go to... I go to synagogue, yet their life doesn't reflect at all someone who loves Jesus. This has been in the planning stages for a long time. Now these guys are just looking for the right time and the right conditions. For them and to us, and this is a warning for all of us, if we're not careful... Hatred and bitterness grows like a weed in our souls. And one, when that happens, one sin leads to another. And it gets easier and easier and easier. You see, what they don't see is their betrayal of Jesus is a betrayal of God. I know plenty of people say, oh yeah, I believe in God, but this Jesus stuff I'm not into. God would be like, what are you talking about? You just stated a, 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 an impossibility. And it will hurt them. And as we learned on Sunday, the whole city will be destroyed as a result of this. You see, sin rationalizes itself. Sin blames others. Oh, we've got to do this. We've got to get rid of this guy because of him. We've we, we got to do this. What happens is that sin, when it blames others, it makes others the sinner to justify our actions. The Passover feast was a reminder of how God saved the firstborn. Good Friday is a reminder of how God gave us his firstborn. In other words... What the Passover celebrated, the forgiveness of sins, the deliverance of God's people, and salvation, Jesus will perform on the cross. And notice it says the religious leaders feared the people. Feared the people. Yet they didn't fear the Lord. And they seek to kill Jesus. And Jesus will let them because he seeks to save. The religious leaders think they have control over the situation, but they have absolutely no control over the situation while Jesus is in total control of the situation. Okay, so Jesus still isn't killed yet. We're just watching. We watched a few things that happened in the temple. Now we're going behind the scenes of the religious leaders plotting. Then it says this, verse 3, still in chapter 22. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Whenever you see that in the Bible, that means the apostles, the twelve apostles. So he went his way and conferred. He goes and discusses with the chief priests and the captains, the religious guys, how he might betray him to them. I, listen, I want to hand Jesus over to you. And they were glad. Another version says they were delighted and agreed to give him money. And it's not very much. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. He's like, hey, you don't want the people to see it? I know how to make it happen. I know what he does. I know his moves. I know that he's going to do the Passover meal and he's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and it's going to be pitch black. There's going to be no crowds. That's where you're going to nab him. Now, this is a terrifying passage to me. 
Some of you saw that Satan entered Judas and that terrified you. That is not what terrifies me. What terrifies me is Judas looks like a total insider. He was the treasurer. If you wanted to have somebody watch the money, wouldn't you give it to the guy that looked the most trustworthy? He looked like the consummate follower of Jesus. No doubt he comes into the religious leaders and says, hey, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, to, to turn on him. You don't have to worry about flipping me. I'm flipped. I'll do it. And what would they, th what would they think? No doubt they must be, oh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. God is totally blessing. Opportunity has knocked at our door. No, the devil has knocked on your door. And you guys are so out of touch with God, you don't even realize it. In fact, and the timing is not exactly easy to tell, but in fact, the Gospel of John tells us that, that Judas even brings Satan to the Last Supper. <laughs> that, 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 that Satan joins him there. And But what's really scary to me about this is that Jesus that Judas, sorry, walked with Jesus for over three years. He saw all those miracles. He witnessed the incredible compassion of Jesus. He saw Jesus' love for people. He himself was loved by Jesus. He heard all the great teaching from Jesus. He had his own feet washed by Jesus. He countless times heard Jesus pleading with sinners to come to him. I wonder in that foot washing incident, when he was washing his feet, was he looking at him with all his eyes and just saying, you don't have to do this, man. You don't have to do this. My father will figure another way, man. You don't have to. But the scripture had said he would. You see, Satan, who the scripture makes no doubt about the fact that he's real and his minions will will seek to exploit our weaknesses. We'll seek to magnify our hurts. We'll seek to magnify our pains. He will do whatever it takes to get us to flip. Today, it's a variety of things. He'll hook you on social media. He'll hook you on drugs. He'll hook you on alcohol. He'll hook you on pornography. He'll hook you on binge watching. He'll hook you on politics. He'll hook you on the new morality. He'll hook you on selfishness. I could go on and on. He will do whatever it takes. It says Satan entered Judas. How does that happen? Judas left the door open and when the devil came, he didn't resist. He didn't flee. And so now both the seen and the unseen world, the natural and the supernatural world, are against Jesus and his followers. And many of you probably don't know, but Jesus knows how you feel when you've experienced how demoralizing it is when someone you trusted when someone you considered a friend turns on you or starts turning other people on you who won't even speak to you. Judas is a sobering reminder to us that not everyone that appears closely tied to Jesus that not everyone who is closely tied to their church belongs to Jesus. 
and belongs to the family of God. You see, Satan opposed Jesus, but Jesus is gone. So now his target, it's you. It's me. It's the church. You see, what he does is, is exactly what he does to Judas. He comes to try and produce defections from within. That's how he wants to tear the church down. That's how he wants to get people to stumble. So what do we do? Well, we have to remain faithful. We can't get absorbed in our emotions and our anger and our bitterness because it's so very easy to be like Judas and to quite simply turn your back on Jesus and turn your back on his mission. You know, it's not always easy to tell. It's not always easy to tell the difference between someone's weakness, let's take Peter for an example and his denial, and, and someone who completely rejects Jesus like Judas. I think one indicator that, that someone is more like a Peter is a sense of remorse of how we treated Jesus. It's interesting when when Saul gets knocked down on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, he's been persecuting the church, and Jesus says to him, hey, why are you persecuting me? That's how closely Jesus identifies with his people. And so an indicator that someone is, is, is an, an insider, acting like an outsider, if you will, is a sense of remorse in how they treated Jesus, how they treated his church, how they treated his people. And, and there's a big and attached to that, a strong desire to make it right. Oh, being sad is one thing. But having a strong desire to make it right, that's repentance. That's truly wanting to be a follower of Jesus. We began the second half of this message that the actions of the people reveal much about our hearts towards Jesus. So the choice is now yours. Who are you? Are you a traitor? Have you turned on Jesus? Did you once walk with him and now you've walked away? Oh, you're blaming other people. It's all their fault. If this guy didn't do this, if he didn't do that, if he didn't do that, come back. Maybe you're a hater. Maybe you're a hater. I think most people who are haters, the reason that they're haters is because they've spent a lot of time listening to the misinformed. Ever really sat down and talked with someone who really knows their stuff or someone who, who has taken the time to really understand the heart of Jesus and has understood their own sinfulness to the depth of the fact that they, think, they want to say to you, listen, and I say this to you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if he would take me, he would take you. Seriously. You say, oh, oh, oh. I say, listen, you don't know what goes on in this head. And he'll take you. Maybe you're indifferent. Are you one of those indifferent people? You just come and, you know, maybe you go to church, maybe you don't, maybe you follow Jesus, maybe you think I'm a good person. It's just indifferent to the whole thing. Jesus wants passionate people. Passionate people. Maybe you're just completely self-centered. Every decision you make is what's best for you. You don't, you don't think about other people. You know, in this day and age, people change churches like they change their socks. It's a really a sad thing. 
I mean, do you, do you really think that you can participate with a bunch of people in church life and you leave and it's not going to be hard for them? Really? I mean, don't. That, that they're not going to be coming to people like me and the other pastors and asking all kinds of questions? That they're saying, well, we're kind of hurt. They left. They didn't even say goodbye or it was just, it was just bad. I mean, I mean, are you one of those people? You didn't learn that from Jesus. Jesus set his eyes on what? On Jerusalem. He knew he had to go to that cross. Or are you like the widow? Are you saying, Lord, here I am. Take me. I don't have much. I don't have much to offer. But here it is. Here it is. Take what little I have and do what you can with it. And you see, though, in the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, Jesus basically takes a kid with a happy meal and feels a, you know, feeds a small stadium full of people. Jesus can do a lot with a little offered to him. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says this, for the, Jesus said, For the Son of Man, his favorite name for himself, has come to seek and save that which was lost. Friend, Jesus came for you. Jesus came for me. Those words were spoken to a man by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were among the lowest of the low in, in, in Jewish culture. They're like people today who sell drugs to little kids. I mean, that's what they were like. They were Jews collecting taxes from Jews for the Romans. I mean, they were like, and the, and the people, the, the Jews hated the Romans in their land. They were like, this is God's country. Get out. But Jesus goes to this guy, Zacchaeus, and he came to him. He bypassed all these other people in the city. And he walks right to this tree with this little short guy. Zacchaeus is up in the tree and he says, hey, you, come on down. I'm going to your house today. He came for Zacchaeus. He said, the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. You see, Jesus Christ is the generous king who gave his life on the cross so Zacchaeus could be found. So I could be found so you could be found. My dear friend, please, please, please do not go to bed tonight without knowing that you are a true heaven-bound insider. Don't. Because if you're not, then you're an outsider and Jesus says, you're lost. Jesus says, I came to seek and save that which was lost. You see, Zacchaeus, and I don't want to get talking about him. We'll be here for another couple hours. But Zacchaeus, he knew he was lost. Maybe you're watching right now and you know you're lost. Or you're a follower of Jesus. You say, you'd say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you know you're drifting. You know it. You haven't picked up your Bible in a long time. You haven't prayed in a long time. You're not walking with the Lord. You're bitter. You're angry. You're envious. You know it. Zacchaeus knew that he had not received the grace of God. Zacchaeus knew that he had not received the forgiveness of God. And Zacchaeus knew that he was far, far away from the love of God. And Zacchaeus was stunned by Jesus' offer. Jesus said, Zacchaeus said, I'm going to give away half of everything I've had. I cheated people. I admit it. I'm a crooked tax collector. I'm going to give a, I'm going to make it right. 
Remember I said that's a sign of repentance. He said, I'm going to make it right. He was stunned by Jesus' offer. Friend, tonight, if you're not a follower of Jesus, are you stunned by that offer? That Jesus says, I'm willing to die in your place on the cross? That I'm willing to take the punishment for all of your sins so you can go to heaven? And what did Zacchaeus do? He did the very thing that if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm asking you to do right now to grab the opportunity. Jesus holds it out to you. Grab it. Take it by faith. Put your trust in Jesus. And I pray for all of us tonight that we will all take that opportunity. Either we will renew our trust in Jesus or we will experience it for the first time. The wonderful generosity of Jesus who gave everything of himself and says, even if you don't have two pennies like that widow did, come to me with nothing. Just bring your sin and your heart and I will take you in. Well, let's pray.